0: Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock, and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living." The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls." The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumour of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding.
1: Um, you might like to turn back to page 521, back to our Job reading on chapter 28, because that's where uh, we're going to be focused. And you remember that we got into the sort of main part of the uh, book of Job last week. Job was a man who had faced terrible suffering. He knew what it was like to lose everything that he held dear. Tragedy had hit. And he had lost his livelihood, his home, his family members. He had even had to do something that no parent should ever have to do and bury his own children. And as if that wasn't enough, another round of suffering had hit Job, and now his health was going as well. When it came to suffering, Job had had the full set. And I'm sure many of us can resonate with his experience acutely. And all of us can resonate with it at least at some level. But as well as the physical suffering and the grief that Job had to go through, he's also had to wrestle with the torment of not having an explanation as to why all this has happened to him. In fact, it is the wrestling with the questions that occupies most of the book. Chapters after chapters of the book, that we've only had time to touch upon, are given over to the discussions that Job has with his three friends in the wake of this disaster, searching for questions. And the thing that they keep going over again and again is whether Job was to blame for what has happened or not. Because in his friends' minds, if you remember from last week, it's all very simple. In their view of the world, the righteous always prosper and the wicked always suffer. And so therefore, if Job is suffering, it must be because he has done something wrong somewhere along the lines. He must have offended God and sinned. And that's why this is all happening to him. There must be something in his life that he's being punished for. But Job knows that that can't be right. He can't think of anything that he has done to deserve the suffering that he has faced. And so he and his friends just sort of keep on going round and round in cycles with their discussion. Again, if you grab your handout, I've tried to summarize that with a little table which I gave you last week as well, where you can see the discussion going back and forth, even though I haven't put the detail of what it says. They just keep going around, they insisting that he must be in the wrong, and he keeps insisting that he's innocent, innocent especially in chapter 27, the one just before the... Uh, the one that we had read this afternoon. It's a little bit like one of those arguments you sometimes have with somebody where you just kind of go back and forth restating your position but not getting anywhere at all. I have a particular debate with one of my friends about whether the correct time to have dinner is at 5.30, which is what he thinks, or 6.30, which is what I think, or 7.30 if you have guests. Obviously, I'm correct, but we keep going back and forth on this. And the discussion goes something like this. I think the correct time is 5.30. Well, I think the correct time is 6.30. But the thing is, you're wrong, because it's actually 5.30. Yes, but what you're not hearing is the subtlety of my argument, which is that it is at 6.30 that the correct time is. Yes, but come at it, let's come at it from another angle, because really, 5.30 is the correct time. But I think you'll find, and so on, and so on, and so on. This is a discussion we've been having for about seven or eight years, and haven't come to any consensus of, just restating our position again and again. Now, Job's discussion with his friends feels a little like that as you read through all those chapters that I've listed on the handout, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, albeit over, of course, a much more serious issue of whether Job is to blame for what has happened or not. None of them will back down And last week, we looked at Eliphaz's first speech as a sort of representative sample. He kicked off the discussion fairly tentatively, but if you keep going through the rest of the speeches by his friends, you'll see that they all just keep trying different angles on the same thing to get him to confess that he must have sinned somewhere. And if you also remember from week one of our series, we the readers know that they are wrong. We had an insight into the real reason why Job was suffering at the start of the book. And it wasn't because Job had sinned. In fact, it was completely the opposite. Job, of course, also knows that his friends are wrong. He knows in his bones, correctly, that he hasn't done anything to deserve the suffering that he's facing. But like his friends, he doesn't really know what the explanation is. To him, it just seems like God can't be acting fairly in this instance which eventually leads to the speech that in uh, chapter 28 that we're going to focus on today that we had read earlier and this speech really taps into the heart of the book because it's all about what you do when you don't have wisdom or you don't have the answers what do you do when you don't have the answers what are you supposed to think when you don't know why you're going through suffering And so Job gives this great speech where he laments the fact that he can't find wisdom, the wisdom that he needs to make sense of it all. There are two parts to Job's speech, which I've listed there on your handouts if you want to take notes. In verses 1 to 22, um, he makes the point that man has achieved great things but hasn't acquired true wisdom. And then in verses 23 to 28, he points out that God does have true wisdom but hasn't revealed very much of it except that man should fear him. And all of this then leads up to Job's final appeal that he is owed some real answers from God, some real wisdom. Now, just to manage your expectations, this is going to be another week where uh, we're wrestling with the questions and not really quite getting to the answers yet. We're going to get the answers such as they are in the book next week. We could have jumped there. Straight away, but we're going to try and follow the pace that the author of the book has set himself. And he thinks we need chapters to wrestle with the questions first. So do come back next week if you wanna see what God actually has to say about all of this as we get to the end of the book. But let's turn our attention back to chapter 28 again. Firstly, in verses one to 11, Job makes the point that humans are very good at finding stuff there are certain things that we are very good at searching the world for. And he makes this point with an illustration about mining. Even in Job's day, way back in in the Iron Age or perhaps even earlier, humanity was able to achieve great feats of mining. No open shaft mining in those days or mechanical drills or anything like that, of course. But still humans found ways to dig into the hillsides, into mountainsides, and pull out metal ore and diamonds and so on. And Job makes this observation in verse one. Let me read from verse one. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. When it comes to man's mastery over the physical world, it feels like everything is possible. We can delve into the darkness of caves And mine shafts come out with precious jewels and gemstones that are worth thousands, millions of pounds. There is no corner of the physical world that man cannot explore. Even the mountains that might seem impenetrable at first, we find a way in. Verse 9, man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns the mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. It's brilliant poetry, isn't it? Here's a mountain. It seems completely immovable. And yet somehow man can uproot it like a plant by cutting channels into the rocks and finding all the treasures that lie within. And of course, Job's observation has only become more true over time. We have explored not just the mountains, but every corner of the globe by this point. I recently discovered that the world's most remote island is a tiny little island called Bouvet Island in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. I learned this by playing uh, the online game called Wordle. If, uh, if you like Wordle, or even if you think that's so last month, I recommend that you try Wordle. It's great fun, it gives you a silhouette of a country or territory in the world and six guesses to sort of narrow down where the place is. Anyway, I was on my final guess and I'd narrowed it down to being several thousand kilometers east of South Georgia, the South Georgia Islands in the South Pacific somewhere. Had no idea where it was, so I decided to cheat and go on Google Maps, because I didn't want to fail the game. And I tried zooming in, I just couldn't find it. I was looking around the Pacific Ocean, zooming in and out, in and out, in and out. And then finally, after several minutes, I found this teeny tiny little island, which was the correct one, called Bouvet Island which I later learned from Wikipedia, is the most remote island in the world. But humans have discovered it. Someone has gone and stuck a flag in Bouvet Island in the middle of the South Atlantic, which has nothing but ice and penguins on it. No stone has been left unturned in our world at this point, and all the treasures of the world have been found. Or think about our ability to explore beyond the world. On Christmas Day last year, the James Webb Space Telescope was launched by NASA. The National Geographic website says that the telescope will have the capability to observe the universe over the sweep of cosmic time, capturing images of objects that formed more than 13 billion years ago. Its mission is to tell the story of the universe, to stare back in time and study the infant cosmos, a sizzling realm of radiation and chaos from which stars, galaxies, planets, and people somehow emerged. I struggle to remember what I did last week, but the new NASA telescope uh, will be able to allow us to see back in time 13 billion years. I don't think it can literally see back in time. I think the point is light takes that long to get that far, but you get the idea. We've searched every corner of our world. We've even searched the heavens above in ways that would have boggled Job's mind. Although, of course, it only proves his point even more. But here is the problem. We can't do the same for wisdom. Verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding we can dig into the literal darkness of the earth and come out with literal gems. That's a difficult thing to do, but mankind can master it. We can search into the literal darkness of the heavens and space and sea for miles and miles and miles and miles. But digging into the metaphorical darkness of our universe, the realm of wisdom, and coming out with the metaphorical gems, answers. Well, that's a lot harder. Where do you start mining if you want to dig up wisdom? When it comes to seeing into the physical world, man has made advance after advance, but have we got any better at seeing into the world of wisdom since Job wrote this? Surely if we have discovered Bouvet Island or constructed the James Webb Space Telescope. Surely we've discovered everything that there is to know about everything. Surely we've found out the answers to all of life's deep and difficult questions and now how to navigate through life with perfect wisdom. Have we, or is it the case that many of the deep questions still remain elusive to this day? Where did the universe come from in the first place? Why does it exist? How should you live your life? Is there anything after death? The James Webb Space Telescope might be able to see back in time millions of times, but it can't see far enough to find out those kinds of answers to those sorts of questions. And so Job's conclusion in verses 20 to 22 still seemed to be true centuries and centuries later. From where then does wisdom come and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Wisdom still remains hidden from the eyes of the living. Even the birds who patrol the air can't find it. Even the Google Maps satellite cameras that cover every nook and cranny of the world can't find it. It remains hidden even from death as well. Abaddon and death are only able to say that they've heard a rumor of it, but couldn't tell you anymore. Now, of course, there are many today who believe that if we keep pursuing science, then we will indeed find out all the answers that there are to know in the end. One man who certainly advanced our understanding in the 20th and 21st centuries was Stephen Hawking, undeniably one of the greatest scientists of all time. He made great advances in our understanding in uh, quantum physics and relativity and that sort of thing. Scientific advances that Job couldn't have even begun to imagine if Hawking were alive today. He probably would have said that the answer to Job's question is to be found in empirical science. If we keep doing physics and biology and chemistry, then eventually we will find the answers to everything. The problem with Job is he's turning to philosophy and to religion for his answers. And of course, that's going to yield nothing. But if he were to get out the test tubes, things might be different. If we keep doing that, then eventually we will find the place of understanding. I looked up a lecture from 2005, which I found published online. Hawking tries to show that whilst previous ignorant civilizations like Job's might have turned to religion for wisdom, science can now provide the real answers. He begins with barely disguised mockery by telling about how the Bishongo people of Central Africa believed that in the beginning there was only darkness and water and the god Bumba. And Bumba vomited out the sun the moon, the stars, the animals, and man. And Hawking ends the lecture by declaring that his own area of science is now where the answers are to be found. The bashongo people were really just stabbing in the dark, but cosmology provides the real answers. He says this, cosmology is a very exciting and active subject. We are getting close to answering the age-old questions. Why are we here? Where did we come from? But if you go back and read through the lecture, which I did, you'll see that Hawking is actually just doing a sleight of hand at the end there. He says absolutely nothing to answer those questions if you go back and read it. He says a lot about time and relativity, which is very interesting, but he doesn't even touch upon the question of why we are here. At least the Bashongo people had a theory for that. And despite illustrations about the origins of the universe being a little bit like bubbles of steam emerging from boiling water, um, which, by the way, it sounds remarkably like a creation myth, the sort of thing that the Peshongo people might have come up with, the lecture says nothing about where that all came from. So despite Hawking's hubris, he hasn't really given us anything to unearth the answers at a deep level of why we are here and where we came from even if he has given us some interesting theories about the Big Bang. or let's consider wisdom of another kind. Hawking may have been a very highly acclaimed and wise person in the eyes of the scientific community, and rightly so, but what about his personal life? In 1995, he divorced his wife to marry his carer, whom he later divorced in 2006. Was that the wise thing to do? unbelievable advances in the scientific world. But was he able to solve the age-old question of whether you should stick with your spouse, even if you fall in love with another person? Even if you're not convinced that it was necessarily wrong for him to get a divorce, it's still difficult to make those sorts of decisions wisely, isn't it? Even if you're a very clever person who has achieved the highest possible status in the academic world it's difficult to make wise life decisions. We can all relate to that at some level, can't we? I often find myself doing or saying stupid things and wondering afterwards why, after 35 years, I didn't have the wisdom to see what the right thing to do was. Hawking may have liked to have believed that science would provide the answers to Job's questions, but I suspect if Job were here today, he would have said that all Hawking has done is to help us to get even better at mining. He's added to the great achievements of searching and exploring the physical world. He's mined the universe for knowledge about the Big Bang. But he still hasn't found the place of wisdom or understanding. The deep questions of wisdom still remain hidden. And not only is wisdom hard to find, it's also very precious, as Job points out as part of this speech. Verse 17, gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. The irony of this, of course, is that he's just pointed out that man can mind the earth and find the most precious gemstones and gold. But we would trade in all of those gemstones and gold to have the thing that we can't find, wisdom. Wisdom. I'm sure Boris Becker would agree with this. You can earn tens of millions from being a tennis star, but when you're declared bankrupt further down the line, it becomes clear that wisdom would have been even more valuable. Imagine if you knew someone with a crystal ball that actually worked and it was able to give you the answer to any question that you asked and they were willing to let you use it if the price was right. How much would you pay them to have the answers to whatever deep questions that you have? Just think for a second about whatever question it is that eats you up that you deeply wish you could have answered. (coughs) Maybe like Job, your question is, why am I suffering in this particular way, and when will it end? Or maybe it's another question that isn't to do with suffering. Who should I marry? How do I raise my children so that their lives stay on track? Why do I find it hard to make lasting friendships? Can I have certainty that what I read in the Bible is really true? Am I right to trust it? Perhaps even do I know for sure that God is really there, and that he really cares for me? We'd probably pay a lot for the answers to those sorts of questions if we had the crystal ball, wouldn't we? Whichever one of those it is that gets under your skin most. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it nor can it be valued in pure gold. Wisdom, answers, knowledge, invaluable. But of course there is one person who uniquely does have all the answers, one person who is supremely wise. This is our second point. In verse 23, Job says, God understands the way to it, And he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. God made the universe and everything in it, so of course he has all the answers. God knows what true wisdom is because he's the source of it in the first place. He gave the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure. Imagine if you were in a pub quiz and the answer was how much water is there in the Pacific Ocean precisely. You had God on your team, you'd nail that answer because he put all the water in the Pacific Ocean. He knows how much is there. But he also knows the difficult answers to the difficult questions as well. He knows why you're suffering. He knows who a good person would be to marry. He knows how you ought to raise your children and so on. God uniquely knows all of these things because he's the source of it all originally. I spent part of my gap year um, after I finished school doing a number of oil paintings and during that time I painted several portraits. And I know exactly how all those portraits came together. Um, Anyone else looking on can only guess who the sitters were and how many layers of paint there are and so on and so on, but I know the answers to all of those questions. I have complete wisdom about the paintings that I painted. I know who the people are, I know why they commissioned them, I know how I started it off, I know where it went wrong and I had to kind of correct it along the way. I know all of it. So it is with God and the universe. It all came from Him and therefore of course He has perfect wisdom. He knows everything about it. True wisdom is hidden from everybody, but not from God. And God has revealed some of it. He has revealed some of the fundamental information you need in order to be wise. Have a look down at verse 28. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, is understanding. Now, I'm not sure in what sense Job means that God has revealed this to man. He could mean that God has revealed this in the Old Testament scriptures, other parts of the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, this phrase does occur several times, so that could be what Job's referring to. Although, one of the interesting features about this book is that it is not overtly connected to the rest of the Old Testament narrative, even though it is in the Old Testament part of the Bible. It almost seems deliberately set apart as if it's tackling a timeless and fundamental issue. And so I wonder if what Job means is that God has revealed this to man in a general sense in the way that mankind is created. In other words, God has put a fundamental piece of true wisdom into the minds of every person which is to fear him rightly and to turn away from evil. Pretty much everyone at least thinks about the question of whether God is there or not, and that they should fear him. Even professing atheists know instinctively that that is a question that they ought to ask and take seriously, even if they later decide that they don't think God is there. And similarly, I think everyone has some sort of built-in instinct that tells them that they ought to turn away from evil, even if they then decide that they're not going to do that and harden themselves to it. Call it a moral compass or whatever you like. But the point that Job is making, I think, is that everybody has this piece of true fundamental wisdom that God has revealed to fear him and to, take, to turn away from evil. And I suppose you could look at that with a glass half full or a glass half empty mindset. Glass half full, we do have a piece of true wisdom that God has built unto us. We're stabbing around in the dark, except for this. We know this. But glass half empty, it's not very much to go on, is it? God does have true wisdom, but he hasn't revealed very much. Just that man should fear him and turn away from evil. Now, of course, as you read on through the rest of the Bible, God does reveal more wisdom but still not the kind of wisdom that we'd like about the specifics of our own lives. Not the answers to the big sorts of questions that I listed earlier. And I suspect that Job sees it more as a glass half empty sort of thing in this speech, because the point of the speech is that the sort of wisdom that he'd like, the answers to his suffering, remains hidden, because God has only revealed a little bit of true wisdom. And all of this leads Job to his final appeal to God. Again, we don't have time to read over the next 3 chapters, but flick forward to chapter 31 before we finish. Chapter 31 and verse 35. Oh that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh that I had the indictment written by my adversary adversary Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If only God would reveal some true wisdom about my situation. If only he would step in and give an explanation. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder, says Job. I would bind it on me like a crown. Job just wants the answers. The physical suffering is bad enough, but the lack of explanation is torture, Come on, God, you owe me an explanation for everything that has happened. And if you took the time to read through all of the chapters up until this point, you probably feel it as well. We know Job and his friends don't have the answer. We know that God does have the answers. Surely it's time for him to step on the scene. In fact, let's go stronger because that's what Job's speeches really hint at. It's time for God to come and justify himself, isn't it? To give an explanation for his actions. Don't you feel a little bit like that sometimes? Doesn't that resonate with your felt experience about areas of your own life as well? Isn't it time for God to come and justify what he's doing? Well, we'll have to wait until next week to see what kind of answer Job does get. Because God does step on the scene. Although his answer isn't quite what Job was expecting. For now, let's pray to finish. From where then does wisdom come and where is the place of understanding? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are unable to find true wisdom in this world, despite the great achievements of humanity. We acknowledge that without revelation from you, we remain in the dark. As we wrestle with the big and difficult questions, such as the suffering of Job, which so many of us feel in our own lives as well. We do pray for your help to know what to think. Especially next week, we pray for your help to understand rightly the answer that you give to Job and that you give to us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.